Okay, one more announcement as you settle in. Uh, we have Doubt Night happening this Thursday at 7.30 uh, upstairs. Uh, Doubt Night is just this conversation that we have, people from different backgrounds and different walks and different points along their spiritual journey, believers, unbelievers, agnostics, atheists, Christians, come together and dialogue and discuss. So if you have any interest in doing that, that'll be this Thursday, 7.30 p.m. It'll be upstairs, and you can see Sibby on more information on that. Okay, so Seven Mile Road, let me say one more time, it is a joy uh, to worship the Lord, to do so together with you, and today especially uh, to celebrate a year of God's grace to us since we've launched this church, uh, 52 weeks of God being kind to us as we've gathered around His Word, gathered together in community. Um, Hebrews 13 has this verse that says that the, the church should function in a way that it makes the work of the pastors or pastor a joy and not a burden. And so I, I just want to say to you, I am incredibly grateful for you. I genuinely, God has put a, a love in my heart for you, and I am thankful to God for you because you have made this first year a total joy for me and, and not an ounce of a burden, but rather a joy. You have fulfilled that command, and God has been incredibly kind to me through you. I'm in enough church planting circles where I hear from church planters and they have nightmare stories about their first year and the people that they meet and teams and divisions and factions and gossip and divisiveness and the rest. And yet among you, I honestly have witnessed by God's grace to God's glory, the great love and humility and service and encouragement. Instead of ripping one another apart, you have built one another together we have communities of people who are confessing sin to one another so that this is becoming more and more a people in a place where you don't have to put on a pious pretense to belong or put on a show or a game, but rather we come broken and allow the gospel to be the only good thing about us. That is glorious and good, and to God we give glory for that. As a pastor, I'm telling you that, that in this church, God is healing marriages breaking addictions, children are being born, sinners are being reborn, saints are being sanctified, God is doing good gospel fruit here, and, and we are incredibly grateful, and I am thankful to God for His grace and thankful to God for you, and, and I am grateful for these 52 weeks to drink in that grace together with you on these Sundays and every day as we live life together. Today we're, we're going to be thinking some about the story that God is writing in us, through us, with us, among us. And as we do that, we're doing two things. We're considering our story, but we're also wrapping up the story that we've been looking at this whole summer. So if you've been with us over the summer, you know that we've been in the book of Jonah. If you have your black Bibles, you can turn to 775. But we've been working our way through this Old Testament book, the prophet Jonah and his story. And today we're wrapping that story to a close. We've been working our way through it for about 11 weeks. And, and now, today, we're going to wrap things up and bring that story to an end. By now, uh, you know the story, or if you're just joining us, maybe you've heard this story before. But at least what I'm hoping is, if you've been with us over these 11 weeks, if you've been tracking with us, this story is not what you initially thought it was, right? I remember when we were starting the series some 11 weeks back, one of you had written on Facebook how you read this story to your kid every single day, but you're not really sure what the tale is about other than the small man who got swallowed by the great fish. Hopefully, 11 weeks later, we've seen that this is hardly a story about a fish, 
Rather, it's a story about a gadol God, right? That, that Hebrew word we kept seeing throughout the four chapters, this great God, right? Jonah's story is a story about a gadol God, a great God. We've seen him be a gracious God who has pursued rebels, right? Whether those rebels took the form of pious prophets or pagan unbelievers in the city. We've seen God be merciful and pardon both the religious and the irreligious. We've seen God be missional as he loves this great city and genuinely cares for all of its people. We've seen God be sovereign as he rules over wind and wave and whale and worm and he rules over all things for his glory and our good. God has been gadol throughout this story. And today, we wrap that story to a close as we look at the last two verses of chapter 4. Hear it one more time. Jonah 4, verses 9 through 11. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant. For which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. And with that, the story ends. Let's pray for a moment, and then we'll wrap this up together. Our great Father, we are thankful this day and we pray that you would birth in our hearts gratitude for your faithfulness, that you have been a God who from the beginning has been writing a good story and that in your grace you have seen it fit to sweep us up into your story. We pray that you would help us to hear your story once more today and even to consider how we might play our part, the chapter you're writing as we are a part of that great story you're telling. Let it all point to Jesus for his glory and for our joy. Hear us as we hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, one of the things that you have to love about the book of Jonah is the way that it's going to come to an end, right? Throughout these four chapters, we keep seeing surprises, sort of ironies here and there, and things are never the way they appear, right? The the pagans are better than the prophet. The city repents. The religious doesn't. Everything is sort of backwards and upside down. And and there's sort of left turns where you didn't expect it and and unexpected surprises all over the place. The book ends without letting down as well. It, It ends on this note that you didn't see coming because Jonah's book ends with a question. It's not a a usual way in which you end a story in the Bible. In fact, it's only one of two books in the whole Bible that end with a question mark. And and both those books actually happen to do with Nineveh. One of the things that you love about the way that it ends is that God gets the last word in Jonah. Right? The last word of this story. We've been hearing this dialogue, this story. We've been following this man for four chapters. The last sentence and the last word belong to God. He gets to speak the last word and the book is put to rest. So if you remember, we're in chapter 4. Jonah has gone outside of the city that God called him on mission to. He's sitting on a hilltop, sort of just angry, pouting. 
He's upset that God is going to show mercy to the nasty Ninevites. Why would those pagan idolaters get mercy while us religious people are pushed off to the side? And he's angry and he's pouting. And if you remember, he's sitting there looking at the city and God causes this great vine or plant to grow up over him to give him shade in the desert sun. And then by night, God sends a worm to attack that plant. It withers and dies. And now Jonah is angry because God has literally turned up the dial on the sun so that the degrees are even hotter. He's blown this scorching east wind into Jonah's face. And Jonah is angry, angry enough to die. That's what God asks. When we get to the end here, God says, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? And that's what he says. Yes, angry, angry enough to die. And then God responds. Here again, his last words. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and so much cattle. God ends the story we said last week or a few weeks ago with that word about cattle saying, He's not just caring about these people, but the whole city, the fabric of the whole thing. And He ends with a question, right? He's going to lay into Jonah with a series of questions. And God has a pattern of doing that. So, for example, if you read through the book of Job, you know that there's this man who suffers for some 40 chapters, and and there's dialogue by Job's friends and by Job, and they're all saying words. But then at chapter 40, God starts talking, and he just starts laying in with one question after another so that by the end, Job has nothing left to say. He just shuts his mouth. God sort of has the last word. It's the same thing here. God begins to ask Jonah a series of questions, and what he asks is, Jonah... Tell me, you pity a plant that you didn't labor over, you didn't tend for it, you didn't garden it, you didn't work over it, and yet you're heartbroken over this plant. Let me give you an example. My father is into gardening, right? Just really, but in a very masculine sort of way, hardcore gardening, right? When I was growing up, I had no backyard because he turned the whole backyard into this mini plantation. I had like this four-foot square in which I could kick a ball against the wall because I couldn't go into the backyard. He made the whole thing a garden. If you think I'm exaggerating, in my wedding video, and I'm not making this up, he took the cameraman to the backyard and made them take a picture of him standing next to the tomatoes. So my video has me putting on the tux, and then it switches, it cuts to dad in the garden next to the okra holding some beans, right? Uh, My father, for example, when we went to church, our church had these church auctions where you would raise money, and so you'd bring the vegetables that you grew. My dad bought his own vegetables because he wouldn't be disrespected by how someone was going to underpay for the things he grew. So I remember going home going, dad, you just bought your own tomatoes, right? And he'd go, yeah, am I going to give it to him for $4, right? So he would outbid everyone else to get his own crops. He was really into gardening. Now, I don't, I, I don't share that, but I get it, right? Why? Because the day summer approached, Dad was out there. Had a towel around his waist, so, I mean his head, soaking up the sweat digging up the whole backyard, laying down fertilizer, putting down seed, watered that thing twice a day, spraying for insects. 
He built this trellis over the whole backyard so that the vines and plants could grow up on it. He had leaves that he raked in the fall that he saved in big garbage bags that he laid out because somehow they made the plants grow bigger. I get dad, right? So now if some nasty worm came and destroyed his crops, dad would be angry and rightly so. God's saying to Jonah, Jonah, you don't even have the relationship of a gardener to this. You didn't make this thing. You didn't work for it. You didn't tend after it. This thing sprang up in a night, withered in a night, and your heart is broken. And he says that because he wants to drive the greater point home. And that's when he lays in with this follow-up question. Should I not then pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are 120,000, not plants, but people who will perish in a night. People who are so lost morally, so stuck in their sin, they can't tell their right hand from their left. And God says, you care for a plant you had nothing to do with, then can I not have pity on a city that I've been building for millennia? on people that I've been tending and laboring over and loving for centuries. They're going to perish in a night, and you care more for plants than you do for people. Jonah says, I don't get your love, God. And God says back, I don't get your love, Jonah, because you love plants and I love people, 120,000 of them who can't tell right from wrong. And I've been working on them and growing them, and all that they are is because of my grace to them. And don't you think it'd be fitting and right that I would care for them? God uses this sort of lesser to highlight this greater, right? If you get this, how could you miss that? In the New Testament, Jesus will do this all the time. Jesus will say things like, listen, if you who are sinful know how to care for your kids... Right? So he says this part where he says, if your kids come and ask you for bread, you're not going to give them stone. If your kids come and ask you for fish, you're not going to feed them a snake. And then Jesus' point is, if you get that lesser, how can you not get that God, who is the good Father, will provide all things? If you who are sinful know how to do good things, how will your Father in heaven not provide all things? He does that all the time. Or he'll say, listen, God clothes the lilies of the field that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow. If God clothes the weeds, and then he says, and if he feeds the ravens, the ugliest bird ever, the, the rat with wings, if God feeds the ravens, don't you think that he's going to feed you? If, if he takes care of the lesser, don't you get the greater? Or God, God knows every sparrow that falls. And, and Jesus' point is, if God knows the sparrows that fall, the smallest sparrow, don't you think he knows you? And it's the same thing that God is doing here. Jonah, if your heart is broken for a plant, how can you not pity people? If it's broken for a pitiful plant, how can it not be broken for precious people? At the end of chapter 4, God is saying one more time. Right? A, a pastor said he used to think that there was two calls to Nineveh, once in chapter 1, once in chapter 3. But here in the last verses of chapter 4, God's calling Jonah a third time and saying, will you finally get it? Because even down to the last sentence, Jonah doesn't. And God's saying, will you get it now? This is what I'm about. I am about showing pity to people who don't deserve it. And you should know that better than anyone. 
because you've received pity. I saved you from the water. I gave you a second chance. You should know. And so God's asking him a second time, a third time, will you join me? Will you join me on mission? Will you join me in loving people? Question mark, the end. And the book's done. No more words, no more sentences. And then you don't hear Jonah again for another thousand years till God speaks of him in the person of Jesus when Jesus says, I'm a greater Jonah. It's a very odd way to end a book. You think about it. God has basically asked, are you going to join me in mission? Are you going to join me in loving people? Question mark, done. And you don't get a response. You don't get an answer. You get nothing. You get sort of silence. It'd be like watching a movie that's building up to this great scene with this amazing dialogue, this all-important question, and then the credits start rolling. It's just done. You have no idea what's the answer going to be, right? Because when you come to the end of Jonah, what you want to ask is, wait, so what happens? How, how does Jonah respond? Does Jonah get it? Does he come in? Does he join God? What does he say back to God? And you don't get it. You get nothing. It's actually brilliant, right? Because Jesus sort of did this same thing. One of the parables Jesus told in the New Testament, we've talked about it a few times, is Luke 15. He tells the story of the prodigal son and the elder brother. Right? If you remember that story, the younger kid has a father, wastes all his wealth on women and prostitution, liquor and the rest. He comes back in rags. The father receives him. There's an elder brother who stayed at home the whole time, did what was right the whole time, never partied with his friends. And by the end of the story, the elder brother is standing outside angry. And how does the story end? Jesus sort of ends it on a cliffhanger. Because the last scene is the father goes out to this older brother and says, will you come in? Same question. Will you join me? I love the lost. I'm going to have pity on this one. Will you come in? Will you be about what I'm about? Question mark the end. And you're sort of left going, wait, so what happens? Does the elder brother come in? Does he get it? Does he repent? What's going to happen? And it's only when you read Luke 15 again and you read the very first verse that says Jesus told this parable because there were some Pharisees who were listening and they were grumbling that Jesus was expecting, extending mercy to sinners. And so for their sake, Jesus tells the story so that by the end you get, wait, the point is, you're supposed to go, wait, what are the Pharisees going to do? Jesus leaves it on this cliffhanger because he's basically saying, so Pharisees, are you going to come in? The question is not just does the elder brother come in. Everyone who's hearing it would know he's pulled the hearers in to find out what are the Pharisees going to do? Are they going to go in? Do they get it? Are they going to repent? And it's the same thing here. You end this story thinking that the big question left to ask is does Jonah get it? Only then you realize that God's bigger question is do you? Do you get it? He ends with the question because his bigger question is not just what happens for Jonah from here, but what happens to you? Like you've read the story, all four chapters, you've heard it for 11 weeks, and the question ends in such a way that pulls you into the story and says, do you get it? Do you, will you repent? Will you come in? Will you join me on mission? Will you be with me in loving people? 
You think the ending is to find out, so what happens to Jonah's story? But the bigger question is, what will happen to yours? What will happen to ours? Every reader who would have read Jonah's book would have gotten, this is about us. That's why for thousands of years, Jews, every Yom Kippur would read the book of Jonah and in unison they would confess, we are Jonah. That's what we titled the series. Because everyone would have gotten, this is about us. This is not just a story about him, this is about us. And, and it's the same thing for us. Jonah 4 pulls the reader in to say, so where will your story go from here? Will you join me on mission? Will you love people? So maybe this is where you're at. You've been with us, maybe some of you, for 11 weeks. Or maybe you're jumping in with us. Maybe if you're honest, you would say, I get it, Ajay. I get loving the city, and I get God's heart for mission, and I get that he's poured grace on us, and we should have that overflow to others. I get it. But the truth is, I'm just like Jonah, and I honestly don't know how I'm going to change. I get that you might do mission, but I don't know how this is going to really change me. If you're honest, and that'd be a good place to start, maybe you'd say, I really am just like Jonah. I love the gospel when it's here. And I love being around people that are like me, and I love when it's comfortable. And honestly, I'm not sure I want my comfort ruined by people who are not like me being a part of this whole thing. And I'm, I'm fine with mission, but I'm just not sure I'm on mission to the city. And I love what's happening here. I'm just not sure I'm excited about what's happening there. Maybe you'd have an honest confession that says, I'm just like Jonah. If that's you, I have really good news for you. And that's that I think Jonah changed. I think Jonah got it. I think God took this self-righteous, exclusivist, religious, bigoted, small-minded gospel for me and not for anyone else, for my people and not the city. I think God took that guy and completely broke him and changed him. How do I know that? What verse? I can't give you a verse, right? Here's why I think it happened. There's this scene from, I don't know if you've ever seen Indiana Jones. This is silly, but there's this story, uh, there's this movie called The Last Crusade. He's in this library, and he's got these clues, and he's got to look for a Roman numeral 10. So he's looking for a big X. He's found one through nine, and he's in this library floor, sort of looking, and he can't see it anywhere. And then he begins to realize that what he's looking for is right under his nose, but he just can't see it. So he climbs some steps, goes to the top, and looks that he's been standing on a giant X the whole time. Goes down and digs. It's, it's been right under his nose. He's just been too close to sort of see it. I think it's that same thing with Jonah. I think the way you get it is if you take a giant step back, if you look at 1 verse 6 or 2 verse 4 or 3 verse 10, you're not going to see it. But if you take a giant step back and go, we have this story called Jonah. Where did we get that from? Who told us the story of Jonah? Jonah did. Right? We know Jonah's the author or the source behind this. I don't know if his fingers actually penned the words or if he mouthed it to someone else who did, but I know Jonah's the source. How? Because nobody else knows the details of this story like Jonah does. Who's going to know the prayer that he prayed inside the belly of the fish but Jonah? Who's going to know the debate that he had in chapter 4 by the hillside with the sun and the plant but Jonah? And how does Jonah portray himself in this book? In the worst possible light you could imagine. 
He paints a picture of himself. He tells him st his story in a way that he comes off looking like a bum all four chapters. I mean, literally down to the last sentence, there's not a single redeeming thing about Jonah. How could he do that? How could he write a story in which God comes off as the great hero and he comes off as the nemesis and God gets all glory and he gets overshadowed the whole way? How does he get to that place? The only play, the only way he gets to that place is if he's not there anymore. If, if God's done a work in his heart so he's not the man that you see in chapter 4. Because if he is who he is in chapter 4, then in the beginning, he's still self-justified. Remember, he said, I knew it all along. I was right, God. I knew this is how you'd act. He still thinks he's right in the beginning of chapter 4. He says, basically, if I could run again, I'd run to Tarshish only faster and further. But by the end, he writes this story in such a way that everyone knows God is awesome and Jonah was a mess. And the only reason he can do that is because he's not there anymore. And this was a chapter in his life, but it was a dark chapter of his past. It's part of a bigger story that God was writing. Because this man got it. He changes. He gets it. Right? And now he can tell you a story so that you might avoid the very pits and perils that he fell into. You know, some people read Jonah and they go, Jonah could have never written this because look at how bad he makes himself look. But that's what grace does. Grace moves you from boasting in yourself to boasting in God so that you become small and God becomes big. Like I'll give you an example. In the New Testament, we know that Peter was the source sort of behind the book of Mark. All right. If you're writing the gospel story of Mark and you get to add whatever stories you want and leave out whatever you don't want, don't you think if you're Peter, you sort of leave out that, that silly story about denying Jesus three times? I mean, down to the detail where a little slave girl comes to you, questions you, and Peter literally says, I swear to God, I swear by heaven, I have no idea who Jesus is. If I'm writing that story, I'm not putting that in. But Peter does. Why? Because he's not there anymore. God has done a work in his life so that his past, rather than being a prison that holds him, is just another chapter in a bigger story that God is telling. Because God is good at writing stories. Dark chapters and all, they point to God. So here's what I'm saying. For 10 weeks, I've been saying we are Jonah. On this last week, I'm saying we can be Jonah. Do you get it? We're Jonah, but we can be Jonah. God can take a group of self-righteous, insular, City disdaining. Gospel for us, but not for anyone else. We love what's happening here. Don't ruin our comfort, people, and make us repent and make us change. He literally took a small man named Jonah and changed his heart. And he can do the same thing here. God is writing a good story with Jonah. And here's what I want to say. On our one-year anniversary, God is writing a really good story here to God's glory. And it has some beautiful chapters of God's grace. So on this one-year anniversary, let me tell you quickly our story and the story that God has begun to pen here. In 2003, a group of 13 guys gathered together in a one-bedroom apartment on Bustleton Avenue, the same complex that I now currently live in. And we had one question. I got to be a part of that group. We had one question we were asking. What does God want us to do for our generation? We had no idea about church planting. 
not a clue about pastoring. We didn't know anything about being missional. We didn't fully get the depths of the gospel. We were the bad news bears of church planting. We, nothing good should have come from that group. I mean, it was, none of us were educated in theology. We were just a ragtag bunch that, that there was no shot anything good should come from that. And yet, over the next five years, God began to write a story because God is really good at writing stories. And he brought the, that group new faces so that it grew, shrank it so that some faces left, some faces in and out, but he kept building this thing over five years, preserved it. This group did research papers and we prayed and we dialogued and we prayed and we fasted and we prayed and we did studies and we prayed and we had conversations and we prayed and we sought advice and dreamed and we prayed and God kept growing this thing somehow. Over time, God began to show this small group that their vision was too narrow. That just like Jonah, they wanted a church that was for them and for the people that were like them. But just like Jonah, God began to expand that to say, I love people. I love the city, and if you're going to be a church in Philadelphia, you're going to be for this city. And he began to grow that. And along the way, he connected good friends and good advice and good mentors and good counsel. He connected a church in Boston that began to pour the gospel and mission onto this group and began to shape and mother and, and fill everything that would be planted here. You fast forward a few years. And in October 2008, this group with new faces now began to gather in homes. And we began to pray and study and talk and study and dream and study. And we began to talk about what a church in the city that God is calling us to plant might be about. And God gave us three words, gospel, community, and mission. So that everything that's happening here is rooted in gospel and community and mission. And that story was going just fine, and then God collided it with another story. So that in 2009, this story went from beginning in 2003 to actually beginning 134 years before that to 1876, when a group of German evangelical Christian Reformed Christians planted a church called St. Mark's. And God called that church to the very city that 134 years later he would call us to. And in 2009, he weaves the two stories together so that these two separate streams sort of form this better, bigger river. And God, who is great at telling stories, weaves these two to become now one story. So that in a few weeks, friends... St. Mark's Church is handing over eight acres of land and free buildings so that Seven Mile Road Church can continue the work that those saints have been doing for 134 years because God is really good at writing stories. Tell me that's not an amazing story and we get to be a part of Right? This isn't a story that we started in 2003 when now you look back and you, God had been writing a story since 1876 and caught us up into that stream so that God would be the great hero and everyone would say, how amazing is God? And God has been writing a story and the amazing part is you get to be a part of it. You get to play a chapter. You get a paragraph. Right? If God is painting this canvas, 
Then Seven Mile Road, you're a brush stroke on that canvas. So that literally Ephesians 3 says that even the heavenly realms, angels and demons, are standing back at God's work in the church and saying, wow. And you get to be a brush stroke because God is really good at writing stories. So here's what I see. I see that on October 10th, we're not being given land. I feel like what we're being given is a baton, right, that says, we've run our length of the race, now you run. And you keep writing the story that God's going to tell you until God has another chapter and you hand that baton to someone else, to God's glory and for our good, right? God is really, this whole book is a great story. That's what the whole thing is. It's a story of a good God who created a good earth, of sinful human beings that rebelled against that God, a God who literally wrote his own death into the story to save those sinful beings and who is going to make all things new so that the end of the story is even big, bigger and better than the beginning. And the beautiful part is you're actually in this story. You're a chapter that's being written here. Your individual lives and our church are a part of God's great story. So the only way to end Jonah 4 is to ask the question, will you join me in mission? And will you join me in loving people? And will you let God keep writing a great story for his glory? Amen. Let's pray. I thought what we would do as we close is we would just have a few minutes for corporate prayer. So you can just say a word of thanksgiving to God. You can say a word of just dedicating yourself afresh to God, submitting this church to God. But just lift your voice for a moment and pray, and then I'll close us in prayer. Let's pray together.